Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Mark, CTO of Beyond Trust. And they discuss how Mark's career in cybersecurity started after he got raided by the FBI. Mark's co-discovery of the infamous Microsoft vulnerability, Code Red, and how the culture of a company has to fundamentally change in order to make meaningful changes to security. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So do you see yourself as more of an entrepreneur or a technologist? How do you sort of view yourself? Uh, it depends on the day. I mean, pro- probably both in a sense, right? I mean, uh, you know, I kind of oscillate between, um, you know, everything from hacking around on code and getting in the weeds on things to, you know, doing the kind of chief technology officer, you know, business role um, and everything in between. So I, I think definitely uh, the... Um, moniker a friend gave me when I was uh, was very young. Uh, he coined the uh, term chief hacking officer. So I think that's uh, pretty representative. <laughs> Have you been hacking a while? Uh, yeah. My, I mean, such as since I was about 13. How'd you get into that? Uh, for me, it was really just kind of an escape from a crazy home life and, and cra- crazy upbringing. And so for getting my first computer and kind of access to it, it was just this an entire world of uh, learning the program, learning how things work. I mean, there was definitely that aspect where you had like uh, control over it, right? So I think uh, anybody who's kind of grown up as a, as a child in a, in a chaotic household, if you will, you know, it turns into something where having your uh, escape, sometimes the escapes end up being, you know, bad ones uh, that are detrimental. Uh, luckily, mine was uh, nerding out with computers and getting into hacking and, and things of that nature. So it was a, a world I could kind of control in the sense that, uh, could control that uh, virtual space in the way that, you know, the, the real world uh, was uncontrollable for me at that point. Yeah, I connected with that a lot. So like around age 11, 12, my parents got divorced. And it was more so of they were just focusing on other things. So I had a ridiculous amount of free time, I was self governing, I could, you know, completely autonomous. And that's not what you see for most 13 year olds, right. And so I look back on it now, I'm 34 now, and I have two kids and a third on the way. And I look back at it and I say, man, I was so lucky that like some of the worst (laughs) stuff I was doing was just like, you know, things on the computer and I wasn't out there like smoking meth and like all this other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's like what you were saying at the the start that kind of, um, overcoming things. I mean, it, it definitely can make you stronger, but I, you know, I consider myself kind of lucky in a lot of ways, right. Cause I think it also, uh, there's plenty of people where you end up broken and you might not ever get out of it. Right. So, I was lucky that like my uh, escape and, and kind of uh, addiction, if you will, was, um, you know, computers and, and hacking and learning about that sort of thing uh, versus sure it could have gone uh, a lot of other ways for me. Yeah, I, um, I remember one day I went to Best Buy and then I went to like Books a Million and I found this um, book my dad let me buy and it was called Hack This Site. It was a <laughs> nice. book about Hack This Site. And I went home and I started playing around with it and... I, you know, performed a couple of the the hacks, went through like the courses and then almost immediately I figured out that I could make money like writing code on script lance. And then my focus completely shifted and I, and I, I barely had like maybe six months of my life where I spent it interested in the security and the hacking before I realized that businesses would pay me money to write business logic code. And I was like, I'll go do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting thing. I think everybody's got the like, yeah, what was that first book or exposure? And um, I don't remember, I don't remember what store we were at. We were at some sort of a used computer store, and I think it was like twelve or something like that. And the only programming book that they had was uh, um, a language that's not very popular anymore called uh, Visual Basic. And so oh, yeah. that was like the first thing I got exposed to was not like the the prime language that I would have wanted, you know, to be learning at the time and stuff like that, as far as the kind of value to uh, using it in the kind of hacking space and, and, and security and stuff like that. But uh, uh, it was definitely a fun exposure and jumping off point just to learn programming in general. My, my, my friends will tease me, of course, on Visual Basic being the first language. So it's out there now. Yeah, I think it was Visual Basic Studio was the like IDE for that, there, right? There, there you go. You know, you end yeah. up uh, dr drawing all your uh, interfaces first and then figure out what's the code actually going to do versus pretty much everything doesn't work that way anymore. <laughs> yeah, the closest thing I found to that was when I got into a little bit of the um, Apple development from, you know, that's how they do a lot of their interface work. Um, right, right. Yeah. So that's what, that's I, what I, I, I still prefer it as a thing. Get the uh, as real as possible, you know, UX, UI prototype. Uh, so you kind of get that full experience and then fill in the blanks. I, I, I don't know if that's just a, a preference or the, uh, you know, been poisoned by Visual Basic early on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's because it's the way you develop the best products. Like that's what I have found to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you go from, you know, hacking, raided by the FBI? How did you not go to jail and how did you end up making a career out of it? It's funny you ask that. A lot, a lot of people don't ask the, like, you were raided, did you get in trouble or go to jail or any of that? Yeah, so at, at the point that I was raided, I'd been hacking all sorts of, you know, companies, government sites, you know, things of that nature. And uh, different, you know, I should clarify, different than a lot of things you hear about hacking today where it's like ransomware, cybercrime kind of driven. You know, this this was hacking at a time when it was much more about the ability to just uh, go explore systems and the way that you would go, you know, learn about new computer environments and things of that nature would be to go break in the companies that had those sort of computer systems because you couldn't, all the magical stuff you can do these days of setting up your own home hacking lab just wasn't quite a thing, right? So your lab was other companies, universities, stuff like that. And so that hacking eventually caught up with me. But yeah, I was never actually uh, charged or you know, uh, arrested or no record or anything of that nature. The uh, wake up call was very real though, I'd say, <laughs> as far as, uh, you know, what do I do at that point? I was definitely uh, scared enough into doing the right things. And I think I'd been trying to find a path of how do I take this like passion that I had. I was writing a lot of like security hacking tools at the time. And, um, you know, I very much knew as best as a 17 year old could know what they want to do with a career. I knew I wanted to do something uh, in my life with that. But this was at a time that the uh, security industry was kind of more in its infancy, right? There was a couple of big you know, consumer antivirus companies, but the modern security market that we kind of know today really didn't exist. So there wasn't like a, as clear as a path as there would be right now. And did you have an influence in your life that was entrepreneurial that caused you to not just go work for another security company, but actually start EI, I think was your first company? Yeah. Yeah. So it was an interesting path when I, um, at the time that I got rated, I was working for a kind of a website development type of firm and the uh, founder of it, uh, Frost Bushnock, a friend of mine, he, uh, I basically told him, you know, hey, I got rated by the FBI didn't end up uh, spooking them. <laughs> and so I uh, told them, hey, I have all these ideas of like, you know, security technology and stuff that I actually, uh, you know, want to try to productize basically. And uh, 
that was kind of the initial seed. And we started the first company together, uh, EI Digital Security. And really the first product that we built was to take all the different kind of automated hacking tools that I had been building uh, and turn that into what you know we now call uh, uh, vulnerability management, where you can essentially scan a company's environment, figure out the, figure out all the uh, weaknesses and ways that a hacker uh, could break in and how to fix those things. Oh, nice! Is that when you got involved with the whole Code Red Microsoft thing? Yeah, yeah. So in in, in parallel to you know building a lot of security tools and starting my first company, EI, I was also heavily involved in some of the early uh, Microsoft security research. Uh, so in the kind of like uh, late 90s, early 2000 timeframe, uh, helped you know, pioneer a lot of the kind of early vulnerabilities in Microsoft software. And so in doing that, we were also trying to figure out, you know, software that could be defensive and trying to, you know, prevent attacks against Microsoft systems. And uh, throughout that work, we eventually found the, essentially the first Microsoft computer worm called Code Red, uh, which is an interesting story in itself. <laughs> Yeah, we were doing the prep meeting and I made a joke. I was like, oh yeah, he's sponsored by Mountain Dew. And then Adam stood <laughs> up and he's like, hey, there's actually something there. Ask him about it. So I wasn't sure. Did No, that's a, that's a true thing. So the the start of Code Red was essentially, it was a, a, a Friday afternoon and I was uh, hanging out with a good friend of mine, uh, Ryan Perma, who went on to go co-found a company called Silence. And um we got an email from a customer that was seeing something kind of weird happening with their web server. Uh, we started to do some kind of research and started to unravel and figure out that there was this, uh, you know, worm code that existed. But that's probably like less interesting than the like jump to two days later on the Monday morning we were putting out our research. We got a, a call from uh, somebody who claimed to be in the uh, Situation Room in the White House. And um, the worm itself was supposed to eventually flood and kind of a, a attack one of the White House web servers. And so we thought it was probably a crank call or something and called a friend at the FBI to find out, you know, it was actually somebody at the White House that was trying to figure out what was going on. And so then jumped to a couple of days after that, it's all over the news. There hadn't been this sort of worm for Microsoft, uh, you know, up until that point. And so I got a call from the uh, uh, head of marketing for Pepsi, uh, which was making Code Red Mountain Dew at the time. And it was supposed to just be a soft drink that was like out for a limited offering. But I guess because of the the worm and all the press surrounding it, like, I, I don't know, a lot of IT people or whatever were buying Code Red. Uh, and so we got this awkward call from like the head of marketing saying, hey, it's weird to be associated with something bad, but like, you know, pretty cool what you guys found. And like, we just want to send you you know, free Mountain Dew basically. And so the distribution plant down by our old office, just up until we finally told them after, you know, probably like a year or two, we were so sick of <laughs> getting, getting shipments of Code Red and stuff like that. We were like, stop sending it. Uh, so that's always the uh, uh, fun joke at conferences when people try to hand me a, a bottle of that. I'm not quite the, uh, the, the fan as I was back then. <laughs> Man, I have drinking way too much Code Red and Surge. And I think people underestimate how <laughs> popular those drinks were. They were like incredibly popular. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that was kind of our joke in, in naming that we were like, oh, we kind of we kind of appreciate this uh, soft drink as a couple of, you know, hacker programmers at the time. And uh, we ended up naming it after it. And uh, it was like a tongue in cheek, like maybe they'll stay around and, you know, very much did. And and that's uh, essentially why there's code red on shelves still. I would have like named the second virus like Cool Ranch. <laughs> that, no, yeah, that we were like, why didn't we call it like the BMW worm or there you some, go. <laughs> something better, you know, something with better uh, sponsorship.
There you go. Yeah, just a steady stream of beamers showing up year after year. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, so I definitely had a ton of fun um, in the prep meeting. I do a lot of these, but uh, there was one one thing in there, a bullet point in there, that a Microsoft, somebody at Microsoft, like in the security team, I guess I'll back up. One of my producers explained it to me like this. They said, Mark's really brilliant at security. He sort of bullied Microsoft into being better at security. And then one of their heads of security called him up and cursed him out. I don't know if we can talk about that. Oh, no, yeah, dude, I love this, it. You guys, but... you guys gone deep. That's fantastic. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, it was, yeah, so to- totally nice guy. Put that disclaimer up front. The person from Microsoft, <laughs> I, I won't name them. Uh, but yeah, the, the we had this kind of interesting aspect of that we were both a security software company. And so at the, at the time that this kind of um, incident that you're describing happened from a security vulnerability management software, we had the two largest deployments in the world. So we were de- deployed across the entire Department of Defense and then across the largest, uh, I won't name the company, but largest commercial deployment. And so we were both trying to navigate as a startup selling software and all the kind of normal business uh, trajectory there. But we were also very active in security research and very passionate about doing something larger than just the products we were selling, right? So we were trying to improve the security of Microsoft. And Microsoft back in that kind of early 2000 timeframe very much treated security as more of a marketing problem to be solved for than a, than a technical one. And so there's things that people take for granted today. For example, uh, Patch Tuesday is the uh, every, every, uh, uh, every once a month patch release cycle for Microsoft and it's changed over the years. But the reason that came about and also this phone call where I got cursed out is we were trying to make it painful enough from a vulnerability research perspective for Microsoft for them to start fundamentally changing how they approach things. And so we had a, a couple month period where we found a very critical Microsoft vulnerability. We would report it to them. You know, a few weeks later, they would come out with a patch. We would send them another one. And so we would keep doing that over and over. As soon as they would fix one, uh, we would send another. Obviously, we could have sent them all at once, but what we're trying to do is optimize for constant hits in the headlines of these issues to draw awareness to fundamentally get them to change. And so jumping ahead from that, not just because of us, there was plenty of other security researchers uh, active at the time that were doing their own version of what I'm describing. Bill Gates eventually sent out his um, trustworthy computing memo to basically refocus the company as security as a number one priority. But in the process of that, I think it was on the uh, one of those fourth iterations of back-to-back vulnerabilities, and they clearly understood we were holding on to these things and using it as kind of a pressure campaign. And so that led to the cursing out. And we also started at the time to publicly list not the details of the vulnerabilities, but we we're one of the first companies to list, here's all the vulnerabilities that we've reported to Microsoft that they're working on so that we could make public, you know, a vulnerability had been sitting there for eight months to get fixed and is unpatched, you know, by Microsoft and essentially draw more awareness to get them to change. And since then they've changed dramatically and, and uh, uh, for the better. No, that's great. I mean, and it was coming either way. If it wasn't you, it's other people. Yeah, so. and like, like I said, it was. I, I in some ways hate describing it because I don't want to make it sound too much about me and, and my team at the time, right? Because there was so many other people working hard from a security research perspective to try to uh, make change happen there. And, and plenty of people within Microsoft themselves that were trying to fight, fight the good fight and, and change the culture and eventually it changed. Yeah, so you stayed with the hacking. I would just did a brief detour there. So you've gotten to see the whole evolution of the past 20 years. Like, has hacking changed over time? Is it similar? 
Yeah. I mean, I always, uh, I probably boil down hacking or, or kind of um, the, the personality of a hacker. Like I've met everybody from, you know, myself, that's a high school dropout, self-taught in everything I do to uh, somebody who's a, you know, PhD, you know, other end of the spectrum as one might think. But the, the, the common thread is just the kind of an insatiable curiosity, right? Just wanting to understand how things work. And then also that ability to kind of like uh, maybe think about systems and try to get them to work in a way that maybe the people that created them didn't intend, right? And, and that to me is more of like the, the core to hacking is like that curiosity, not hacking in the sense of like the person behind doing, you know, cybercrime ransomware, you know, that, that's the, the nefarious uh, movie, movie hacker is not how I would classify that's more that curios curiosity and, and kind of creator. So yeah, it's, it's definitely changed a lot over the 20 years of going from that exploration culture to just, uh, you know, a major uh, source of revenue in, uh, in crime and everything else. You got to love that cinematic command line thing that happens every <laughs> I cringe like the first movie I ever saw got it right or was doing something legitimate was the Facebook the social network movie where they use right. control commands I was like oh he's actually typing something it's not <laughs> yeah no it, well and then you had you know you had like uh, uh Mr. Robot did a great job and they, yeah. they showed that you could show the real thing and it could be compelling and interesting and you know there's a, a million and one uh bad versions of course of you know flying through magical 3D worlds and everything else uh, that is uh, not, not quite it, but yeah. So you could be doing anything super bright. You've been in this industry forever. What are you doing right now? How are you spending your time? Spend my time at, um, I, I, I'd say two, two ways. So, you know, you mentioned having kids. I have, I have my daughter. So when I'm not working, oh, nice. <laughs> spend the time with her. But uh, yeah, from a professional perspective, I'm the chief technology officer of Beyond Trust. And really my primary interest is that there's, as you see the headlines every day coming out about different hacking events, right? There's always different hacker techniques or malware or, uh, you know, attack campaigns that exist, but everything's usually centered around having the right level of uh, identities that you've compromised and the light, right level of access between systems. So I spend a lot of time, a lot of time researching what are those threats? What are those kind of themes? How does that work? And then what can we do from a product perspective to try to fix some of that and give our customers the visibility and control needed? Nice. And so how long have you been doing that? Uh, so I'm actually back to Beyond Trust about six months now. So I was uh, previously also CTO at Beyond Trust five-ish years ago. I'm horrible with timelines, so yeah. quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was that? How did you get involved with them originally? Uh, Beyond Trust actually acquired my uh, first company, uh, EI Digital Security, uh, years okay. back. So that's how I ended up uh, there originally. And it was, uh, yeah, the, great team. And, and I think one of the things in security, right, is that there's a lot of security companies that are always chasing the kind of surface level threats. And there's always something kind of new and different there. But I like to think about a lot, a lot of what we try to focus on. And, and, and my appeal to the company is that we try to focus on like the kind of core physics of, I'd say, probably one of the most important security concepts is limiting and lessening your attack surface, right? Versus, uh, you know, a lot of security threat prevention type of products are much more about you have this sprawling attack surface and we're going to hopefully see the right kind of attacker behavior versus removing uh, things in the first place uh, that don't need to be there. So entrepreneur, I want to talk a little bit about leadership. A large part of our audience is, you know, leaders, people that want to become leaders in technology growing. You've done the difficult thing. You're a leader as a CTO. You've 
um, gone through, Elon Musk calls it, you know, staring into the abyss and eating glass, the difficulty of starting a company. Um, what are your thoughts? Like when you hear the word leadership, I know it's super broad, but what pops into your mind when you hear that? I, I think the main thing when I hear leadership is that there's a million and one recipes out there on like what the right way to lead is, but it's really about finding yourself, knowing yourself and your, your own style of leadership, right? Um, there's not like a set, you know, template that, that works. Uh, it, it really is much more about understanding what works for you. And, and I think one of the struggles that's like common, you know, for folks, and I know I certainly deal with it myself and, and I've dealt with it myself, is uh, trying to transition into uh, leadership type of roles. You know, it can be hard, I think, sometimes for, for people to make that jump and kind of having that belief in themselves. There's first kind of knowing yourself enough, but then there's, you know, maybe the um, uh, voices in your head, right, that are uh, trying to tell you, uh, you know, maybe you're not capable or, or uh, you're not deserving in some sense, you know, the things of that nature, uh, that sort of imposter syndrome uh, that I think sometimes people go through. And again, I think it varies uh, case by case. How do you deal with that? I call imposter syndrome. I say it's a synonym for self-doubt. But like, how do you deal yeah. with it? Do you listen to like Tony Robbins? Do you surround yourself with people? How do you actually deal with it yourself? That's a good question. I don't, I don't think I have kind of one way. I mean, I mean, I think having a good network of friends, uh, not, not just in a way that the, you know your friends just tell you, oh, you're 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 great. You know, everything's like good, right? They challenge you when when you should be challenged. They say, you know, yes, yeah, maybe, maybe you did do the wrong thing there when when they should say that. So I think definitely uh, having the right peers, um, and, and that's always what I kind of talk to people, especially when they're like earlier in their career, you know, you, you definitely want to be paid well and, and those sort of things, uh, but it's much more about like what sort of growth are you having? And it's not just growth in like the titles that you're collecting or the, the kind of ladder climbing in that se sense, uh, but the growth in like character that you're having and the growth in skills that you're having. And I think it, the, the worst thing is if you find yourself in a job where you could be making great money, but you're not actually like kind of growing in those sort of ways. Um, to me, that's a, a death trap that I don't want to find myself in. Yes, I have found increasingly as I've gotten older, the people I get to spend my time with have like a premium. Like if I get to, if I'm on a project and I'm with really, really great people, that to me is is more important than than money. Um, obviously, money is incredibly important, and I never want to like devalue that. Yeah, yeah ex exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> there's equally that where I've had people, um, you know, that I've known where because of maybe some of that like self doubt and stuff, they they allow themselves to not maybe speak up and, and kind of get everything that they deserve, right? So the, you know, from a money perspective, it's it's the the given of kind of like some level of baseline there, right? But um, uh, I think revolving around it uh, is uh, a horrible thing to do. <laughs> yeah, of course. Not, and not just in business, just in life in general. <laughs> oh, 100%. It's important though, I think you sparked an interesting thought. So as you're progressing through your career, you typically start pretty narrow, right? Like let's say software engineer on a team, become team lead. But as you expand out your compensation, I would argue is correlated to your understanding of the business as a whole. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, a lot of, you know, you asked me earlier, what's some of my kind of maybe day in the life entail. And it's, it's really being able to translate. I think if I have like my, my kind of core value, it's translating, you know, deeply technical things, hopefully at a, at a level that others can understand. And, and I think there's uh, kind of another aspect to that where I, I got advice earlier in my career after I had uh, left my first company EI for a little bit. 
And uh, I was debating taking a job as the uh, chief security architect for a company called uh, FireEye. And at the time, I had been mostly focused on vulnerabilities, vulnerability research, vulnerability management. And, and FireEye was a, a early stage at the time startup uh, doing kind of malware, zero-day threat detection. And I got great advice uh, from someone that I have a ton of respect for uh, named uh, Dan Gear. And I was talking to him about, you know, how do I make this kind of switch between these two worlds? Like, I, I haven't really done anything with malware. And he was super encouraging in the sense of like, you know, that that's actually a great thing that you haven't done it. And he's like, you, you have the uh, the intelligence to think through the problems and you're going to bring a totally different mindset. So I, I think the other thing career rise, you know, that you just made me think of it talking about like that exposure and learning is uh, part of the way that you kind of, you know, broaden your horizon is just in some of the different roles that you take. And that doesn't have to be dramatic where you like start in development and you go do something totally like like sales, you know, something totally different. Uh, but even within an, in in development, you know, maybe switching between front end and back end or something, just to have a broader perspective so that you can think, uh, you know, for that like larger picture as you're eventually, lead, you know, getting into a position of leading and, and trying to steer a ship, if you will. You've mentioned a couple people like Dan just now, and I think somebody Freud or I can't remember his name. Frost, uh, Frost, yeah, yeah. Frost. yeah. yeah. Uh, how have relationships played into like your progression in, in your career and your life? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, like, uh, lately, definitely with like having kids, uh, relationships are just harder because <laughs> time is harder. <laughs> so, um, but no, I, I mean, I, th I think the main thing is life's limited. We, we hopefully have, uh, you know, some level of like awesome memories at the end of it, even that's not, you know, guaranteed, uh, given, uh, different things in the world but uh so it's really about like the the uh to me like the memories you're creating and that all comes down to like you know what people you're surrounding yourself with and um i, I think you need to be uh extremely picky and um uh, extremely thoughtful and who you're spending time with you know but everybody's got different <laughs> versions of that for themselves so that's more what works for me yeah well there's there's like a thousand ways to cook a steak right <laughs> right um yeah so when you're do you ever put in your calendar like time for relationship building or networking at all or no not not specifically i mean i i, I probably could do a better job if i'm if i'm speaking honestly on on networking and stuff like that i i, I kind of oscillate between that sort of aspect of business and then the you know staying up till 4 a.m you know mad scientist in the lab and those two things are like uh kind of counter to each other in some sense and so i definitely select much more for the uh mad scientist in the uh the lab because i find some of the other network building and other things they they it, it kind of takes care of itself if you're working on stuff that you're passionate about and if you're creating some you know impact in the world right um that's not to say you're just like trying to you know do awesome things so everybody kind of comes to you or something like that right but uh i think uh th there's a balance of how much time do you spend um you know, talking about all the things that you want to be doing in life and are aspiring to versus like, you know, can you name what are the three things you did in the last week to kind of get to your goal, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think on the on the the balance of that, I, I uh, uh, you know, again, try to stick in, st stay in the lab, try to work on the next record and then get out there, tell everybody what the new record is, play it a few times and then try to get, quickly get back into the lab until I have something worthwhile to say or do again, you know? My brother-in-law is a music producer, so that's exactly how he it's, operates. He goes away, it, does a bunch of music, comes out for the premieres and the shows, and then goes back away for a year. And uh, yeah. the, the, 
Yeah, the reason I use that example is I was I was kind of explaining uh, to a friend once, and he's in music also, and he's like, oh yeah, it's like you're working on your next record, you want to go tour on it, and then you want to like, but you don't want to tour on the same record for 20 years or whatever, right? And that's where, you know, e- even for me when I'm, uh, and I really appreciate the the thoughtfulness of uh, questions because, um, you know, the the uh, getting rated part, I, I love telling that story because I, I love any chance and if I can inspire some other you know, young person that's maybe going through a trying time in their life, you know, to give them an example of, you know, that there is, uh, uh, you know, maybe hope or path or like, you know, go, go, go fight, <laughs> go fight the fight and try to get out the other end. Um, but uh, yeah, it's always good to have progress. Yeah. We try to do like deeper prep when people have more well-known stories simply because like I've traveled the world and given the same talk 50 times, you know, in interviews, people will often fixate that I got hit by a car when I was a kid and I was in a wheelchair and that taught me discipline. So like, you know, I just sort of go on the autopilot. And so I was like, you know, we can maybe like lightly touch on the FBI thing, but let's try to find (laughs) some better questions around that. And that's cool, man. So you mentioned um, translating deep, deeply technical things, a large part of your job. At Beyond Trust, do you get to do anything that's like really geeky cool, like run a team of people that are searching for vulnerabilities? Or what's like the geekiest, coolest thing that you can talk about publicly? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, we, we do plenty of that. I mean, the the uh, just this morning, actually, like a few hours before getting on here, I was uh, hands-on working with uh, three of the people on my team, and we were essentially uh, doing a, a simulated attack of... Um, essentially compromising uh, a Kubernetes uh, environment, uh, getting code execution uh, within one of the containers, and then gaming out different versions of what lateral movement looked like. You know, plenty of known techniques and things in that space. But yeah, that stuff's cool of like, you know, you start with a vulnerable web app, and now all of a sudden you have um, account access to uh, AWS, right? And like, what does that look like from the attacker's perspective of, of kind of how that actually plays out very hands-on uh, what that actually is. And then the important translation part for me is that it's easy for me to go describe that attack and, and kind of give that sort of an example or something, right? And there's there's plenty of people doing that. But how do I go take the complexity of trying to defend against something like that, uh, the tailored nature of security where security needs to be as, as kind of tailored from company to company as possible? And how do you try to put that into something that's productized where where so many companies um, don't have the people and expertise or the time, frankly, even if they do have the expertise to, to really go learn all this nuance, right? So how do you try to understand that threat to uh, a deep enough level, understand what the solution might look like that you can try to, you know, give something out there to help out? No, it's definitely, it's hard. So, you know, uh, I've programmed for the past, you know, 17 years, pretty much until this show got really popular. So it's been about three years since I was doing it full time, but everything got so deep so quick, right? And the to be able to keep up with all the different ways you can get in trouble with security, even just being a developer, right? You, you have to have your, you have to accomplish the business goal, but you also have to make sure that it's secure. But it's like, how deep can you go? Because you could build out a whole security team for your app. Oh, absolutely. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great point that you brought up and, and, and maybe another way to answer the, the question you asked of how things have kind of changed in the last 20 years. So, you know, security 20 years ago, you, you could be, you could be like a domain expert in like everything to do with malware, everything to do with vulnerabilities, everything to do with like web attacks, SQL injection, et cetera, right? Like you could really be across multiple disciplines in that way. 
you still can uh, today to an extent, but like your, for example, take something like I just mentioned, like, you know, security revolving, uh, you know, Kubernetes and those sort of environments. Uh, there, there's people that that's all they do. Uh, and they go super deep, do some super, super amazing work. And it's, it's hard to think that you're both going to be um, excellent uh, at that level, you know, of focus that somebody has on that and, you know, four other domain areas and security, right? So I think, you know, in security, kind of going back to from a professional perspective, getting exposure to these different types of environments, working on both offense and defense and getting the different perspectives becomes very, very helpful when you start thinking about like, um, you know, how you're going to improve things. And especially as you start thinking about like leadership and kind of what are the, uh, the, the kind of um, physics and kind of core principles of what matter from a security perspective. Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about that is, and tell me if you've seen this, but I saw the sort of egotistical, I can do everything gatekeeper nerd persona become really unpopular really fast because we all have to rely on each other and it has to be a team thing now. It's, it's, all, it's all community driven. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, well, I don't know if I can curse, but like, A, just be a good person, <laughs> you know, um, they just, you know, that should be, that should be the default for any, any profession or thing. But, um, you know, particularly in security, uh, I, I mean, it's a complete community driven effort. There's, there's plenty of security companies that try to do the right things, but there's so many, uh, independent security researchers. There's so many, amazingly hardworking, uh, you know, people at different uh, companies working on the individual security teams. Uh, th those are some of the, um, you know, people that I think of most often, right? Like the, the, the human impact of what it is to be on the IT security team of a company that's responding to ransomware, right? Uh, that, that's a heavy load. And, and uh, you could kind of characterize, I think for most people working in security, depending on the role, there's just kind of this sense of like looming, right? Like the, the sense that like, uh, you know, that's not the, um, you know, if, but when you're going to get breached. And so you always just have this like uncertainty and sense of looming of something's around the corner and something's about to happen. And you hope you're doing everything right. You have a million and one people trying to tell you what the next right thing is uh, a lot of noise out there. And so I, I, I have, uh, yeah, just like a lot of empathy for people that, you know, work at different companies that are trying to get uh, security to where it needs to be. And especially in the context of, you know, security is this race without a finish line, right? Like you're never going to be done. Like software, you're in some sense, you're also never done, right? You're always iterating new version, but there's at least a little bit clearer milestones. And, and so we, we think of that in terms of security of, you know, milestones of maybe different projects or improvements we're doing. But again, with that sense of looming, you know, disaster of, you know, who's out there, you know, that's potentially starting to target you or what's going on in that sense. And earlier you gave sort of like a brief overview of, of beyond trust and what they do, but I, I'm going to ask you, like, can you make it more concrete? Like, let's say I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Let's say we're a company, uh, we have a hundred employees, we're a technology company, we make a SaaS application and we just got some funding and we're expanding and security is becoming a bigger and bigger topic as we grow and bring on more important customers and larger accounts. How could I interface or like, what's the problem you solve for them? How would you interact with that company? Or are they too small or? No, I mean, we have, we have companies of all size from the largest enterprise to small. <laughs> and, and so really for us, the central focus is around 
you, you know, the, what you just described, right? You're going to have a variety of different users and identities, you know, from a cloud perspective, you have a lot of, you know, machine-based identities where there is no kind of human attached, if you will. And so one of the most important things to do is to understand, you know, what are all the, what are those different identities? What are the different privileges of who has access to what uh, and how, what are the different uh, points of how you're controlling access into systems? And so we really try to put a lot of the um, guardrails and safeguards around identity access uh, controls, right? And, and there's other types of you know security products and technology out there, uh, but you know I think our core focus around identity and access is really one that is um, uh, again central to every breach. It gets back to what I was kind of talking about with like first principles of you typically need to compromise someone's identity at a company to then try to move laterally to the systems and the information that you care about. So we're really focused on like that kind of problem space. And so um, one thing that uh, I remember about uh, seven years or so-ish ago, uh, GitHub, people were writing uh, code to scan GitHub for AWS keys and things like that. And then they would just be fully privileged AWS keys because you saw Amazon's I am whole thing, that whole rollout became so much more granular. It started out with like, here's a key <laughs> and it can do everything. And you could either check like admin key or just like other key. And then it became incredibly granular. Are you actually like uh, a system that you'll have, like I'll put my employee into it and then I'll manage what access they have. And does it like API into like Amazon? I can create keys, does it do all of that or am I missing it? No, yeah, it's it's across a few things. So uh, it's everything from um, you know, say you are a, you know company, you have your thousand employees with uh, you know laptops working remote. You know, especially in this kind of like post uh, post COVID uh, world, uh, where that's much more common. Um, so there's both being able to control, you know, kind of what level of access do people have within their systems? You know, do they have full blown administrator access, which makes you know the kind of impact of if they were. Uh, uh, hit with like malware, right? The, the ability for malware to spread and have more impact is is greatly re reduced by removing administrative rights, and better controlling those rights. Uh, so there's both that from kind of the uh, workstation servers perspective, but the same concepts of, of things like least privilege, making sure people only have access to exactly what they need to. Uh, we have solutions that work with that from a cloud perspective to try to rein that in. So it's really from the, uh, you know, client server all the way to cloud uh, and everything in between. Are people like writing beyond trust policies that work with your system, or is it mostly just all done through an interface? Yeah, there's there's definitely policy driven. I, I'd say in the, the the balance of things is especially for large enterprises, they typically have you know uh, people and resources where they really like if it's if it's a uh, you know Fortune 100 bank, right? Uh, they they have teams dedicated to writing you know very tailored policies on who can do what and how, what's the request and authorization mechanism, and uh, uh, we yeah we just do some awesome stuff there. Nice. Try not to nice. curse, but that's that's what gets me excited. Um, and so there's also the um, when you look at you know for maybe a smaller company that's more kind of you know cloud native in the sense where they're not trying to run on on prem or traditional servers in that sense. It's more like SaaS cloud infrastructure. There's definitely how do we help do you know least privilege and things of that nature that we focus on also. Uh, and then of course just the uh, ability for people to be able to have secure remote access to systems and managing the different privileged accounts. And it's not always just the company and, and you know, your kind of own employees at the company. It could be, I need a vendor uh, to be able to get third-party remote access to some 
critical infrastructure type of system that is like a, a you know, I don't know, water filtration pump management, you know, there's weird scenarios like that, that come, that come up. And so how do you provide them secure access that's audited, recorded, you know, exactly what's happening. It's limited to only what they're allowed to do. So th there's a variety of scenarios uh, that we help with. Yeah. There was a, an interesting issue in Florida um, where I think somebody left some sort of like team viewer up at a utility company and they got in through that. And I was like, Oh man. <laughs> so there was, yeah, there was, um, I'm, I'm, I'm bad with, uh, dates and timelines, but I think it was the first or second time, uh, that I testified before Congress, it was about critical infrastructure. And, uh, one of the things I was specifically, uh, calling out when I testified was about the fact that a lot of, um, uh, water filtration, other utility companies, they were starting to, you know, switch and just use everyday off-the-shelf software, uh, like you mentioned, as a way to kind of control and manage. And so there was an example where I was able to, um, I was doing a penetration test of a large utility company in uh, California, and I was able to get a, uh, control of the uh, water filtration system. Uh, and so, of course, I'm not a water filtration expert, so I was asking, you know, one of the employees there, hey, this system that I have control you know, to the filtering process, like, what could you do? And you could obviously at that point, you know, do all sorts of nefarious things that would cause people to have to boil water for a period of time and, and stuff of that nature. And so jumping now, I think that was like 10, 15 years ago or something when I was uh, uh, both uh, testifying about that before Congress, uh, you know, pretty much what I was explaining was the, you know, that sort of scenario that you just described that like happened in the real way uh, in Florida. It, and I think that like highlights one of the challenges is it's, it's it's easy to point a lot of these things out but again like how, how do you not just give the right technological solutions right but uh, you know, especially from a leadership perspective right that the hardest thing in security is not so much the technical security controls it's changing culture right it's changing business culture it's changing you know how businesses operate how people think about it I, I, you know one of the things I always highlight is uh, if you are looking uh, to move into a position of security leadership you know you really want to uh, focus on your, um, you know, kind of storytelling abilities and, and how do you make the uh, technical controls that, you know, you, you know, in your heart is the absolute thing you need to protect the business, but like, how do you translate that in a way that uh, the business understands, cares, and, and most importantly, that you're not just being some, you know, giant, you know, security team of no roadblock, right, that you're actually figuring out, you know, what's the business trying to accomplish, and then how do we give them the right safeguards to do what they need to do as a business, but securely, right, versus just saying, can't do that, can't do this, take this away, take that away, right? Well, it's hard when you, at first you fall in love with the technology and and then you it's, want to protect it. And then, and then you realize that's I, it's, how you, the, yeah. it's the question I, I ask so many people when they're uh, aspiring to different like security leadership roles. I'm like, I'm like, all right, you, you might be stepping beyond the bounds of some of the, uh, the, the technology leadership and into some of the like culture people, change agent type stuff. And, and, you know, that's one of those, again, you got to know yourself first of like, is that the sort of thing you, you want to be doing? And, and not to say that you can't be doing both, right? But uh, th there is a level of, you know, you get to a point, it becomes much more about how do you, you know, change culture and behavior, uh, less than figuring out some technical security controls. Oh, yeah. I had an interesting conversation a few years ago with um, Bryson. He's the CTO at Equifax. And he came in after the whole breach thing and his responsibility was to change everything and he explained to me he told me all of this like he had to just completely uh, i think my video cut out for a second 
but uh, Bryson had to completely change the entire culture in engineering because it was a large company and you know switch it from just being vendor led and don't each department buying their own thing and and bolting it on to it being built into the culture at the lowest level that's absolutely it and i mean and the, the way that it was just uh, that you just described it is is the way to go about it right there is no magic five things that you like kind of bolt on and and you get security right like you know even as somebody at a security product company right i mean we're offering a great series of different tools and technologies right that you could use a part of your process and what you're doing right but you still have to have the right processes the right you know um ideas around how you're going to kind of tailor these things to your business in, in specific ways so absolutely yeah i don't envy him at all having to make that change <laughs> I yeah, would just go I mean, find a you know, company that was good at it. So some people live for it, right? Some people are like, oh, the culture's this and it needs to be that. And like, you know, they, they live for that sort of change. And and again, that's where you just gotta be, you know, you gotta know yourself and know at what stage of your career and what your, you know, what your interests are, right? Because I think I think sometimes people get caught up in the um, you know, wanting maybe like the the next title, or they just feel that they like have to grow up into some different leadership role. I mean, I had, I had a good friend of mine that he was uh a SOC manager, right, on the security operations team and, like, wasn't really looking to do other stuff and moving into, like, CISO-type work and and some of the policy aspects and everything. I was just love threat hunting and getting into that. And I was just like, yeah, you should feel zero pressure on, like, trying to go make that your own. That's the thing you love doing. Keep doing it, you know? That was a mistake I made many times. Like, I would think that people were like me, like anthropomorphism, right? And I would excite them with things I thought would be exciting, but to them, it was stressful. It's like, oh, you're going to have your own team and the company's going to grow. And then they resign. And I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I just stressed this person out who like has a kid at home who's trying like right at that point in time, that's where their focus is. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a funny thing with, with leadership, right? Where sometimes it's just like, well, it's a given I'm giving this person like new growth, new, but like, is that actually what they want, right? I mean, it seems obvious because everybody always you know, wants to grow in this way or that. There's like the, the stereotypes to it all. But yeah, I, I think always asking the first question of like, is that actually their interest and in, and in where are they trying to go? And, and uh, you know, try, trying to be, I think, uh, also the sort of leader that's like a good mirror in the sense that you can hold up a mirror and hopefully reflect back to people. I mean, I can count numerous people that I've like, you know, hired and gave them their first job in security and they've gone on to do amazing things. That's not because of me and because I hired them. Uh, most of the time, it was because I saw something awesome in them, and I just needed to hold up enough of a mirror so that they could see it in themselves and believe in themselves and go down that path, right? A hundred percent. We have to identify the next generation, those sparks in people, and then help fuel that fire. Yeah, absolutely. How did you get the opportunities to testify in front of Congress? Good question. So the first time I testified, I think it was in relation to um, Code Red. And so it was very much, you know, com computer worms, particularly in the Microsoft sense, there had been previously the uh, Robert Morris worm, you know, many years prior. Um, so I believe that was the first time. And then at the, at the same time, I mentioned from a vulnerability research, vulnerability management perspective, we had the, uh, at, at the time, the largest deployment in the world, you know, every a DOD system uh, was essentially mandated to use my company's software. So if it was a, a Humvee driving through the desert somewhere with a server rack on it, it was running our software, you know, Navy ship out at sea, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. And some of the vulnerability research we were doing led to some of the conversations uh, 
and the uh, I believe the second time I uh, testified, you know, specifically on uh, critical infrastructure itself and uh, the kind of risk to the country from that perspective. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was it, it was a lot it was a lot of fun. I was actually talking uh, a friend, uh, awesome author, journalist, etc., extraordinaire, uh, Kim Zetter, and um, she did um, a write up about uh, some of the previous uh, kind of pen tests I had done on the uh, water filtration plant. And I was um, catching up with her at one point. She's like, when the Florida hack happened, she's like, hey, didn't you say something about something like this? And it was like pretty on uh, point to description. And um, yeah, I, I think we can always do more to, to educate and kind of get the word out. <laughs> yes, man, this is great. I want to make sure, do you have like a book that we can plug? I mean, I know people, we can say go to beyondtrust.com. That's the website, right? Hopefully. Yeah, 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 yeah. beyondtrust.com. <laughs> <laughs> for, for your identity management needs, is that how we describe it? Uh, yeah, identity and access security. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. what That's what we do. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.